The scripture reading for today is from Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14, and they can be found on page 19 of the Pew Bible. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Then he had cut enough wood. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is the word of God. verse that we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 11. Actually, it's 17 to 19. I think that prompted us from last week. I didn't update it. So keep, keep your finger, if you will, or some marker in the Genesis 22 story because that's the backstory. You know, you watch Netflix or something. They've got all these great movies and TV shows, and they have backstories that inform what's happening now. We read the backstory, and we're going to be looking at that. This is the chief text that we're considering, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. I think that's in 1192-ish in that same Bible. So let's, let's read this real quickly as well so we know why we're looking at Genesis 22. Also, so Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise him from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. What a perplexing story this is if you were to enter into it. And it gets behind a lot of questions that I think if you're honest, with yourself, you're going to be asking questions like, is God fair? 
Um, is God reasonable in his expectations? <clears throat> Can God really be trusted? If God is loving, then why is life so hard? Why, why is there sin? Why, why are there expectations like this? And those are, those are real questions. They're <clears throat> questions that somebody who follows Christ will ask. But there are questions as well that people who reject God ask also. And it may be the very reason why they reject God. For many people who say there is no God or who reject the idea that there is a God, at one time they believed. And then a lot of times it gets personal. God did not show up at a moment in their lives when they expected him to be there. And so they just reject the notion that there is a God. It's personal. It's not just an objective calculation, but God disappointed them. How much more could these questions be asked by Abraham? And this is, this is why the story is so, so compelling. So let's take a look at the quality of faith that Abraham has and what it looks like for us. These are all pictures in the book of Hebrews of what faith looks like. So what does it look like? Well, we see from this story that faith, first of all, gets tested in verses 1 through 2. We're told explicitly, both in Hebrews 11 and in the backstory Genesis 22, that this was a test, although Abraham doesn't know it. Some of you might have gotten a test on your, like, um, phones this week at some point at noon on Wednesday. Did anybody get that? Wait, this is a test of the national whatever thing. At least you know, right, that it was a test. And that's helpful. Abraham doesn't know this is a test, but we're told the narrative tells us that's what this is. And that happens a couple times in the Bible with people who have very difficult circumstances, even Job. There's a backstory behind this backstory that can't even be seen. And so there's an implicit invitation by faith to say, I believe that God is still at work. That's part of the test itself. And the test here is not to trap Abraham. That's what Satan would do. But rather, its design is to confirm and to strengthen his faith. We know that. He doesn't. And it still seems, even if you know it, like a lot to swallow. We saw last week that Abraham had already left his country. He left his people. Some of you know what it's like to leave everything that's familiar, your food, your language, your customs, and to go to a completely new place, right? I know some of you know that. That's hard to do. It's hard to do, period. You may be pursuing better employment, better education, but here Abraham left because God had called him to do that. So he sacrificed a lot. He left what was comfortable, heading to a place he didn't know where, and that's a picture of his faith. And it kind of begs the question, isn't that enough? I mean, that's a lot that he left. Is God still asking more of him? And you know the answer to the question, yes. It's, I mean, this time it's not just his people that he's leaving and his, his customs and his culture. He's being called here to sacrifice his son. God calls him to do something kind of beyond comprehension. In verse 1, if you're looking at Genesis 22 again, God calls to Abraham, and Abraham says, Here I am. But this calls even harder. Sacrifice your son. And that's confusing on a number of levels, at least to me. One of them is that God himself made the promise to Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations. And Isaac 
is the answer to those prayers. Here he is. The fulfillment of the promise. And so God seems to be going against his promise. And if you're Abraham, he's been provided Isaac, the child of promise. And now God's saying sacrifice that. It's confusing. Why are you telling me to sacrifice the very fulfillment of your promise? That doesn't seem consistent. And so I would ask this question from the text. Why is God asking him to do something that would be counter to fulfilling his own promise? I just asked it. It seems confusing. And second, this test seems greater than any parent could bear. If you put yourself into this story, it's just hard to ask or wonder. How could God ask something like that of a parent? Maybe you're not asking that question of the text. It's kind of where I went this week as I was wrestling with this, trying to put myself into that place and saying, how could you ask me to do this? I mean, we, you know, back-to-back -back deals with trauma care. There's some serious trauma going on in this story, it seems like. You may ask to sacrifice your child physically. This isn't just theoretical. And what about the child himself? Seeing a father raise the dagger with intent to take your life. There's some trauma going on in, in this story as, as well. It would be hard enough, period. But the text itself underscores how extreme this request is in verse 2. In verse 2 in the Hebrew, as you read about this, God said, take your son. And then it says, your son, your only. And then your son, your only whom you love. And then it says, your son, your only, whom you love, Isaac. Just building one after the other. Of course Abraham knew his son's name. <laughs> right? He's building, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. What was Abraham's name? What did it mean? Laughter. So God is saying, turn your laughter into sorrow. Be willing to turn your laughter into sorrow. What's happening here? Well, I would suggest that God is pressing Abraham's faith and he's asking him to die to Abraham's own sense of his hope, his dreams, his future, and even his vision of how God is bringing about his promises. Now, I think this is what Hebrews 11 is all about. What are you doing, God? I don't get it. And that's why Abby's song was so, so appropriate. He's got some plan he's working out that's better, but we just don't understand. And that's some of what faith looks like. Are you willing to die? In this case, very literally, to the vision that you have of what life is going to be like for you. It's astounding. And at the very least, we can agree that God's ways are sometimes unclear, even for people of faith. If you're confused and you feel like, I don't know what's going on here. It doesn't make sense. You're not alone. It happens all throughout the scriptures. And sometimes it's daunting. Abraham was trying to work this out himself. We're told in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham did all this stuff when God tested him. Even though he was confused, he didn't get it. It's through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. So what does Abraham do? He reasons. In his mind, God could raise the dead. Maybe that's what he's doing here. 
And yet you can see even that kind of faith doesn't prevent you from being perplexed. It doesn't shield you from sorrow. It doesn't relieve you of sacrifice in life. It does not grant you crystal clarity on God's ways. Derek Kidner says of this, Abraham is not sure of God's method, but he is sure of God. You know, back in Genesis 15, when God is first building this relationship with Abram, whose name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet, he says something very interesting. Don't be afraid. Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. And that's in the context of the promises he says, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you land. But at the end of the day, God is telling him, I am your great reward. Not the stuff that I'm giving you. It's me. At the end of the day, strip yourself of all the things that God has graciously given you. And what are you left with but God himself? And it seems like God is testing Abraham's faith to say, do you believe Genesis 15:1? Now in Genesis 22, when I'm saying sacrifice your son, because I am your great reward. I'm the one who will protect you. Even when it seems that I'm calling you to something radically different. Faith can get tested on that point. Is God enough? Do we love the gifts he gives us or do we love him? Everything you sacrifice displays that yes, he is enough. That's why we're given this story. But it presses us, at least for me. Is God enough in and of himself? Or is it just the things that he gives? Because when they're taken away and I raise the angry fist at God, what I'm really saying is something very different. Well, let's take a look at the next story in this, or next point here. Faith takes the next step. You might say next steps. In verses 3 through 12, you have this picture of the journey that Abraham makes with his son Isaac. He responds in obedience. Here I am. I'll do what you ask me. And the scene, to me, as you read it, it's a little bit like waiting for a biopsy. If any of you have had that happen before, where there's this impending sense of, I don't know what's happening next, and you've gotten the test, it's, you've gotten it, and you have to wait. How long is it going to take till I find out what they say is happening? And that, living in that space is very, very hard. That's kind of what this text feels like. God says, sacrifice your son. Abraham knows that's going to happen, and so they start out on the journey. It's a three-day journey to get to that place. I mean, what is happening inside of Abraham's mind? The entire, every step they take, they're getting closer to that moment. And yet, here he is taking one step after the other. He packs his bags. He makes the three-day journey to this mountain, Moriah, with his two servants and his teenage son. Not taking pictures for homecoming here. They're headed towards his imminent death. Maybe he's just hoping for the best. He tells his servants they're going to worship together. They'll return in verse 5. They head up the mountain with sticks piled on Isaac, flint and knife in father's hand. And naturally the son is curious in verse 7. Hey, dad. Hey, pops. The fire and the wood. There they are. But what about the lamb? Didn't you forget kind of the main thing here? And they march on. You know, the son's probably starting to put some things together. Abraham says, yeah, God's going to provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, verse 8. They reach their destination. 
They begin building an altar, and then things start looking a little bit different as he arranges the wood, kind of turns into slow motion, like a car accident or a catastrophic scene. And some of you have experienced that before, where everything just seems to slow down, and you don't know what's going to happen next. And that's what the scene is like. He's, he's binding his son. And now I think Isaac is beginning to figure out this is going to go bad for me. I, I, maybe I'm the sacrifice. Puts him on the altar. He reaches out. He takes the knife to slay his son. And he's about to do it. Suspended in there. About ready to come down. And then, verse 11. Abraham, Abraham, the Lord calls out. And he replies just as he did at the beginning. Here I am. Verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Ah, relief. You know, can you imagine the relief? You're not going to ask me to do this. And we see this story of faith, trusting God one step at a time. I mean, Abraham keeps moving forward even though he doesn't know what's going to happen. And that's a picture of what faith looks like for us, isn't it? I've got to put, I just have to keep walking in faith. There's this beautiful picture of the, 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 the narrative of Noah's life and even Abraham's life earlier. They walked with God. It's a journey. We're taking one step at a time. And Abraham hears these great words. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. God knows by virtue of his willingness to sacrifice Isaac that he fears God. He's counted the cost of being obedient to God, sacrificing his son. He considers it of greater worth than anything else. And we say, wow, I wish I had the faith of Abraham. He's amazing. He fears God. I don't know if I could do that. Well, guess what? Abraham's faith is not perfect. This is a little bit like a highlight reel from Abraham's life. You know, 75 years into it. And there's a lot of stuff happening before. And some of you know, uh, we got to see the UC football game yesterday. So we have a family friend who plays on the UC team. And um, you can go and see, you know, his highlights on Huddle. H-U-D-L. It's like a little thing where high school kids put together their highlights for recruiters, but uh, people like me too who just kind of want to watch and glory in their accomplishments and, you know, sometimes insert myself in there and say, could I do that too? <laughs> no. No, I know, I know I couldn't, but I'd like to think that I could. So that's kind of like that with faith too. I mean, this is the highlight reel. They don't create a reel of all the missed plays, right? All the times that somebody missed coverage, or threw an interception, right? Or uh, took a, a swing and missed in whatever sport it might be. That would be that'd be interesting. It would you wouldn't get very far. So this is a highlight of Abraham's life. This is a moment that where he really he really showed that he is trusting God. But there's a lot of times when you ask, is he really? And and what does that look? Thankfully, this is what's so refreshing about the Bible. It's very honest. So here's a picture. Of faith taking the next step and trusting in God and fearing him. But if you read earlier, he stumbled in his obedience and in his belief throughout life. Back in Genesis chapter 12, after he'd received this wonderful call from God, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you kids. and They're going to number the sands of the seashore. Hey, here's a wife for you. And it's all looking great. 
And then there's a famine, and they go down to Egypt, and I referenced this last week, that when he went down there, he said, hey, pretend you're not my wife, but my sister. Let's lie to these people, because he was trying to protect himself. So who's he fearing then? He's fearing man. He's fearing what these people are going to do instead of trusting that God, as he takes this next step in this mysterious journey, is going to provide. God had literally just told him in 12.7, the land you see before you belonged to your children. He'd marry Sarah. So as Ralph Davis says in The Word Became Fresh, <laughs> which is classic Ralph Davis instead of flesh, the promise of God should have cast out the fear of man. But Abram says, no, no, God's promise is not enough here. This situation calls for my ingenuity. So the real problem is with his unbelief. And that's what Abraham did. I got a better plan. You know, God, let's take that pen that you've got there and make it a raceable pen. I got a better plan. So that's Abraham. So to realize faith is complex. God's ways are complex as well for sure. It's Abraham's tendency to lie that we see all throughout his life. But that wasn't the main thing that God was testing him on. He was testing him on this point. Here, do you believe me? I mean, you guys probably all wrestle with particular sins over and over and over again. But do you believe God was the test that Abraham was facing? And so, for me, as I draw out, what is God teaching us about faith in that? Another thing we can say is that Abraham shows that faith can, in fact, take the next step because he's doing that in Genesis 22, even if you've previously failed. Because God's a God of second chances. I mean, Abraham, it's taken, you know, he's swing and miss. Swing and miss a few times, and God says, hey, sacrifice your son. It's a God of second chances. That's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament, too. How about Peter? You're going to deny me three times? No way. Does it three times? You know this guy? No. Know this guy? No. Know this guy? No. Epic fail. And Peter, and who does God entrust to shepherd his sheep? Peter, three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Why would he trust him? He failed. He's a failure. He's a no good failure who, in a moment of difficulty and challenge, messed up. And, and, Christ is entrusting him. So if you feel like a failure today, you're in great company. It's what are you doing with that? Where are you going with that? If you're continuing to construct your own plans in the midst of it, you're going in the wrong direction. So faith takes the next step even when you fail. God is a God who is forgiving and who's gracious who's long-suffering. And, and when you realize that and, and, and move forward, you get to see the last point as well from this story, which is that faith sees God's provision in verses 13 through 14. Abraham's faithfulness in this circumstance allowed him to see God's provision. If he'd bailed, if he'd said, you know what, let's go back, he would never have seen the provision of God. It's a little bit like the point we made again from other examples of Abraham's life. Faith sees some crazy stuff, people. It just does. As you walk and keep working, moving forward, sometimes 
you see God's amazing provision very profoundly. And I think that happens in those moments when you're being tested on obedience as well. Faith drove Abraham to this scene of sacrificial love. And at the last moment, God himself steps in and he provides a substitute. You see that in verse 13. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burning, burnt offering instead of his son. God's provision. And this story anticipates, as you probably know, one who would come a lot later, many, many years later from the line of Abraham. You know, this child of promise, Isaac. And if you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we'll see. And if you follow that genealogy all the way through, one day the seed from the, from the line of Abraham, somebody would come as well in the pages of the New Testament. Jesus, God's own son, his only son, his only son whom he loved. When, when Jesus is baptized, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. He too would be offered as a sacrifice. But whereas for Abraham a substitute was provided, in this case, Jesus himself is the substitute. There's no substitute offered. And so Jesus shows that God himself provides the ultimate sacrifice. And God's love actually held him there on the altar of sacrifice as he bound him. The knife is raised, and that knife, that weapon, is our own sins. And as he hangs on the cross, Jesus did, it's as if the dagger is suspended in midair. But this time, no sacrifice is offered in this place. And the dagger goes down. And he dies. And so Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can imagine Isaac there with the knife. God, Dad, why did you do this to me? There was a substitute provided. Now Jesus himself is the substitute. And so those haunting questions that we started with are answered on the cross. You know, is God unfair? Is he fair or is he unfair? You know, why would he ask Abraham to sacrifice? That's not fair. So the Bible would tell us, look at Jesus. He never sinned, but he was treated as if he had committed every sin there ever is. If you're wondering about God's fairness, consider that he offered his son, who had never sinned. Is God unreasonable in his expectations? Why is he asking so much of me? To sacrifice so much. Look at Jesus. God became flesh. He dwelled among us. And he bid him to live the perfect life that we could not live. Jesus lived perfectly. That seems like an unreasonable expectation. He does it. Can God really be trusted? And again we say, look at Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you wonder that, God, are, is this a bait and switch? Why am I living perfect and I'm getting punished for this? But in the garden, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. At the cross, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Is God unloving? If God were really loving, wouldn't he? Well, look at Jesus. For God so loved the world 
what did he do? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We saw last week that Jesus himself was tested but at every point he passed. His sacrifice is our great provision. I mean this story in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11 is just a figment of the picture of God's great love offered in the person of Jesus. And I think it's given to us in part so people of faith who are wrestling with those questions are called again to look back at Jesus and say they're answered in the cross. And we're invited to go back there again and again and again. We need that to be turned one more time to this story of God's provision. What's the name that is given to this place? You know that it isn't Abraham obeyed. I'm going to build an altar. Look at my obedience. I did it. It's not even Isaac was spared. What is it? It's the Lord will provide, right? That's the name of the place. God will provide. It's anticipating the provision that will come in the person of Christ. And this is made explicit in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us? all things. So it's not just that Christ is a sacrifice and that's it. He's the sacrifice that paves the way for all the gracious provisions we receive from God. So the ultimate sacrifice is made by God himself but the reality is that the experience of those blessings rooted in grace are brought to deeper experience as we walk with God by faith. And that's something we need to hold on to, especially when our faith is being tested. So a few, few things to consider here from this. Just some questions to ask. And these are, I think, hard questions. But what is it in your life that prevents you from receiving the genuine, full, sacrificial love of God? I mean, God has given the ultimate sacrifice in His Son, whom He loves, His only Son, as a display of His love for you. So what's keeping you from receiving that? It's because you're not good enough? You failed too many times? Well, look at the story of Abraham. Be encouraged. Be challenged. Look at Jesus. He can't love you any more than that. It's impossible. You can't earn it. He's given you his provision and his Christ. Maybe you are struggling with grasping his love because of your experience in life and so we're, draw, we're drawn to be shown what it looks like for a father really to love a child in the person of Christ. Or you might ask this question. What is it in your life that prevents you from giving God your genuine, full, sacrificial love? There may be some things that are preventing you from stepping into that and living a life like this. It says, okay, it's all yours. Empty, I come to you. I'm just clinging to the cross. Are you able to say, take everything that I have and use it as you will, even if it means you taking something from me? And that's terribly frightening and terribly freeing at the same time. Now you don't have to hold on to everything. Or perhaps there's something in your life that if taken away would prevent you from worshiping God. Is there something like that? Something that you're clinging to in the place of God himself? 
And I, honestly, I don't think we realize that sometimes until it's taken away. It's hard on the front end to, to answer that question because we tend to think, yeah, I could be Abraham. I could sacrifice, you know, some of us anyway. And God just maybe rips that from you and then your faith is tested like never before. Do I really love God? Or do I just love the things he was giving me? You know, it's interesting. The Israelites, I've been told by one of my Old Testament professors would read this and think of themselves not as Abraham, but as Isaac. When the Israelites were reading this, they would envision themselves as God's chosen people as Isaac being sacrificed. Not in the sense of, you know, what, why, why are you doing this? But in the sense of, look at how God has mercifully saved us from ending our line. You know, we, we tend to read this, and this is a very, uh, certainly American and definitely Western way of, of looking at things and saying, isn't God unfair because why would he take away something he's given? Some cultures look at that and say, wow, isn't God gracious for providing a way out? And so they're not angry at God because they're calling him to do something that's unreasonable. They're gracious to God for saving them at the last moment. You do see the difference between those two, right? I think in a, a, an incult, a, you know, a title, entitlement culture, which is where we live, we, we always put ourselves in that. How are you doing this to me? You're unreasonable. And if you receive everything as a gift from God, you're saying, wow, thank goodness you saved us. Two very, very different ways to dialogue with this. They wouldn't see the injustice of a God who demands that a father slay him. They'd see the mercy of God in the sparing of Isaac's life. Their line is saved. Maybe we need to surrender what we cherish most in worship to the God who's given it to us with that mentality. You know, there was a, a musician, Keith Green, back in the 70s when I first became a follower of Christ. I read his story, No Compromise. It was very influential for me. And he was a classic 70s musician, if you ever listened to him, in many respects. But he was a great piano player. And he, at one point in his life, when he was doing all kinds of great ministry, realized that his piano playing had completely overtaken his sense of identity. I, who I am is wrapped up entirely in this piano and how people are responding to my performance. And he laid it down. He left it. He said, I'm not going to play the piano anymore because he lost himself. He was completely consumed with what he was getting for this thing instead of the God he was allegedly playing it for. He said, if this is getting in my way of relationship with God, I'm going to step away from it. And now later he was able to go back to it with a completely different perspective and say, now I see this as a gift from God that I can play for others. I heard just this week a story of a friend of mine, something very similar, a man who attends his church who is well known apparently on, there's a, there's a softball you know, league nationally. There's a league for everything nationally these days. And there's a softball league where he's a very well known person in that league, one of the best players in the entire nation. And he sensed that God was telling him to lay down his love because he was completely identified in that. This is fresh stuff that's really happening. He said, I'm not going to do it anymore because I'm consumed with who I am here. And God is no longer the object of my worship. 
what I've accomplished is. That's hard stuff. But see, it's freeing. So in tears, apparently said there was a one and a half hour prayer service where people kind of kept coming up. It was like our stories of grace. And laying things down and saying, I'm giving up on this because I realize it's consumed me instead of God. And so that's hard, but good. And that's what faith calls us to sometimes, is walk with God. And it's amazing because here, at the end of this story, it seems they actually did have a worship meeting up there. We're going to go worship God, Abraham and his son. They had the altar. And they had a reason to celebrate. And they had someone to worship. And both had a deeper sense of what it means to offer sacrificial love to God. And more importantly, they understood the kind of grace offered by God who demonstrates sacrificial love to them. And that seems to be what this story is all about. That's faith and sacrificial love. Father, I pray that today maybe, maybe some of us um, have an image in our minds of something we are loving more than you. You might be calling us to sacrifice that on the altar as it were. And if that's true, if, if you're tugging at us in that way, I pray you would not leave it alone until we do that. And that we would be willing to follow and trust your Spirit's prompting in that respect. Maybe others of us just don't know what it means to receive that kind of love and have never really done it before. We are not grasping the genuine, full, sacrificial love of God. Perhaps you're showing us that today and we're willing to spend some time savoring that. Or whatever it may be, whether you're calling us to give this morning or just to receive we pray that we wouldn't leave without without doing that and that you would allow us to take the next step in this journey of faith that is before us uh, today and in the days and, and the weeks ahead as well and see the beauty even the mystery sometimes of living this life of faith that as we've already heard some is written in pencil knowing that there is a God who's got the indelible marker out and who's writing something permanent and that is good. Help us to believe and trust that today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.